Hello, I'm Peter Eyers, and thanks for joining me in this episode of Stages. My guest today is retired artistic director of the Ensemble Theatre in Sydney, Sandra Bates. Sandra Bates retired as artistic director of the Ensemble Theatre in 2015 after 30 years in the role. This inning makes her the longest-serving artistic director in Australia. In fact, the company has had only three artistic directors in its 62-year history. Sandra Bates' term followed that of the company's founder, Hayes Gordon. It was Gordon who was running acting classes that the then-pharmacist Bates enrolled in, pursuing her artistic leanings. She was an avid participant in school drama and was offered a scholarship for training in England towards the end of her secondary education, but cautious parents advised a qualification and tertiary education. Theatre, however, would be a constant call. Gordon advised Sandra that she would be an effective director, and so she began at the ensemble as AD of the studio's Rep Theatre, eventually appointed artistic and governing director of the theatre in 1986. Sandra is thrilled with retirement, but it was a treat to be taken on her journey in this episode of Stages. What a gorgeous day. Yes, it's beautiful, isn't it? Okay. Well, you're fortunate. It looks like that you've had the delight to work on the water and live on the water. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm a cancer. Right. I think that probably... I have no belief in any of that stuff. But Astrology? But no, not really. But but I, I have always loved the water. Loved the water. And, I, and I'm not the only person that's done that, I think. I think people are very... I just always loved the water, and I and I was quite a good swimmer in my day, and you know I just love being in the water. Were you born around this area? No, I was okay. born in in uh, Ashfield, right, and uh, and lived there for a year or two. My father was a doctor and was working in a practice with his brother-in-law in Ashfield, in their home, but I was born in '38, so of course the war started and my uncle went signed up straight away and he went off to the war and dad had to run the practice on his own and so we moved into their house and my aunt and her children moved down to Collaroy where they had another house because they didn't need to be there so I lived there to start off with and then uh, Uncle Tom came home from the war and dad went and and so we moved to Croydon and then we moved to Strathfield and uh, I got married very young. I was 21. So I lived in Strathfield till I got married and, uh, and then uh, my husband and I bought a house down at, in those days you could afford to buy houses. They wouldn't. There was nothing like the... You didn't need nearly as much deposit. And uh, Peter was six years older than me, so he he was all right. I'd, I'd done pharmacy and was pretty impecunious <laughs> because I'd only worked for... Uh, well, you were... It was the days of apprenticeships. So you got paid to be an apprentice, but I think it was £1.10 uh, the first year. And it built up to three pound fifty in your final year. It's not a 
not a king's ransom. Uh, but it was a, at least I was earning something. And then when I was registered, I worked for, uh, I suppose, six or eight months before we got married. And I was earning reasonable money then, but I didn't have the kind of money that you would need for a deposit. So Peter actually provided that, and we both loved the water. So we moved to DY on the cliff edge overlooking the, the sea and it was the, a fantastic spot, fantastic spot, it was such fun and we were halfway between Dewey and Curl Curl, we were on that headland and it was, we loved it. What about visits to the beach growing up as a girl? From Ashfield were you able to get down yeah, to we did. Bondi? We, mum loved it, mum loved the beach and uh, she had an aunt um, who had a house uh, at Palm Beach and we used to go in January for two weeks with my grandparents who was her sister-in-law um, uh, every year to Palm Beach and then the aunt that that moved out of her house um, to Collaroy had this house at Collaroy so we also used to go to Collaroy quite a lot so school holiday, January holidays, we spent a lot of time at the beach. Yeah, it was fun. And of course, the beautiful Ensemble Theatre, which you ran for 30 years, right on the water there, the boat ship. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Fabulous spot. Wonderful. We, we were doing a, a play, um, Linda Aronson wrote it, and it was, I've forgotten what it was called, it was about a cruise ship. And it had, and she'd written it for, I think there were seven women in it. And uh, we were rehearsing, we rehearsed in the theatre at that time because we didn't have any other space. And we're rehearsing in the, th in the theatre and suddenly we hear this terrible noise and the whole, the whole theatre shook. I mean, you couldn't stand on, on the, the actors all rushed to, it was so scary and we, I just presumed a boat had come in and hit the old boat shed. But it was the Newcastle earthquake. Really? Yeah. It was so strong. I guess it travels through water more than... Uh, but we had no idea. We all rushed out to see what had hit the theatre and nothing had. But the waves were huge. Oh yes, it's a mini tsunami. Yeah, yeah. it was extraordinary. But in fact, we hadn't been hit at all. Oh, and in my pharmacy days, I worked in a pharmacy uh, at the Quay. And this guy who owned the pharmacy hadn't, hadn't ever got his registration. He knew everything you need to know, but there was a board exam he had to pass at the end where you couldn't make a mistake, which was fair enough. But a lot of, uh, that was a stymied quite a few people. And so he he had to have a registered there, but he knew more than I did. So it was really so unfair. But I was in the pharmacy and it was out over the water. So I've done a lot of things over the water. And I'm, I'm there, I, the, everybody would leave their scripts in the morning and you had all day to do them because they'd pick them up on the way home. So you, you really weren't exactly rushing. But I had all the scripts just going through them and so I was in the dispensary 
and suddenly there's this almighty crash. And the next thing I look up, I looked up and there is the fairy's nose right beside me, right beside me. I could have touched it. And all the, all the tablets had fallen off the shelves. The, whole, the, the thing was sinking, the whole shop was sinking. And I kind of stood there and I thought, either I am hugely brave or terribly stupid. Because the shop girl had gone, she, she was further out. And I'm still there and I'm thinking, exactly that, which am I? Am I terribly brave or terribly stupid? And I thought, I think perhaps I'd better go because this is gonna sink. So it was very funny because the guy who owned the shop was over at the pub where he spent having a long time, lunch having a long lunch <laughs> and he would come and do lunch times and things but he wasn't supposed it was a ridiculous situation so I rushed over and told him what had happened and he said oh no he came back because the police had arrived and they said he said to me you didn't say anything did you you didn't say anything to the police I said well I just said what had happened and he said but you didn't say I said say what I he said well Oh, he said it's Captain Zigzag, and he zigged when he should have zagged. He said he loves his he loves his his beer. So, Captain Zigzag had come. In, now they have great um, uh, blocks of timber that stop ca ca any Captain Zigzag from landing in a shop. And in fact, they've removed. Well, they haven't completely removed the shops from there, but they can't actually come into your pharmacy. It's an odd, odd experience. The water um, is a very, can provide a very soothing experience. Are you a calm person? Yeah. 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 Even when you were mid-show, yeah. mid-production? Yes, yes. Any camera and I'd be dead, you know. <laughs> uh, once, I think I kind of worked out really early on that you can only do the very best you can and then you have to hand it over. And there's no way you can avoid handing it over to the actors, it's theirs from then on. I mean, I would still go and give notes and things, but, but I'm not the one out there having to do it. And because I'd done the acting course uh, with Hayes Gordon first, I was hugely in awe of what these actors could do because I knew I couldn't do that. And I would ask them to do things that I thought were totally impossible and they'd come up with it. So I had no worries about handing stuff over to them because that's what they were trained for mm. and they were skilled at. And fortunately I kept working with people who were really good. Did you walk to work? Because you seemed to be quite close to the, oh, yes, the ensemble. Yeah, five-minute walk around the corner. It was fantastic. It's fantastic because he, there was nowhere to park, so it was. I mean, we bought this place when I became just after I became artistic director for a very good reason because we were living at Mossman and you know trying to find somewhere to park. It's just hopeless. They've always been really hard, and so I could walk from here, which was great. And um, and it used to take me five minutes when I started, but towards the end. The last five or six, or the last ten years, it took me longer and longer. It took me ten, and then it took me fifteen, and then I had to allow twenty minutes. Now that's not because I was getting older; it was because 
there are a lot of subscribers that live between my place and the theatre. And they got to know my pattern and uh, they knew what time I was, would be. And if they'd seen the show the night before, they'd lie in wait for me and they'd tell me in no uncertain terms what they thought and how, and this, or, or sometimes that how much they'd loved it. But they just wanted to talk about the show. So it was kind of nice. I, I just allowed more and more time to chat on the way. So you retired in 2015 after 30 years, which made you the longest serving artistic director in the country. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And you were the second artistic director at the ensemble after Hayes Gordon. Yes, so Mark's now the third, and, and we've had our, we had our 60th anniversary a couple of years ago, which is pretty amazing that there were only two and then a third one just started in 60 years. Hayes did, I think, 25 years, and I did 30, and then Mark had come on board as my associate director for a few years, and after he'd done it for a few years, I knew he was the one that would... He's multi-skilled. He's a, a, a director, writer, actor, and he had run his English, and he had run his own theatre company with a partner in England where they didn't get any funding and so he understood making a, a business, mind you I think his partner was really good at it, but uh, so was he, but they at running the business side of it and managing with the amount of money you have and um, there's no point in, I tried to get funding when I first started and I said to Hayes this is ridiculous you know all these other theatre companies are getting all this funding and we should be getting it and it's just too stupid and he said to me Sandra don't go down that path it'll only cause you grief and I thought what would he know well I went down that path and all it did was cause me grief <laughs> so, so I kind of quit on it after two years because it was because awful because of the amount of applicate, the papers you have to fill out, and, the waiting. And the then you have to do second guess. You have to second guess what those funding bodies want in terms of plays. And I, the, minute, the minute I stopped fussing about it and started to do the plays that I thought the audience would like it, our numbers shot up, shot up. While ever I was doing things that were keeping bureaucrats happy was ridiculous, ridiculous. And, and we did. so the numbers just improved enormously and I thought, well, I'm not going down that path again. We'll just live within our means. I had an, an experience where it was tricky, but it gives you an example of what you can do to make it work. So we, we'd done a few Williamson's, Dave Williamson's plays, but they'd always been repeats of earlier ones because I didn't know him. But he'd, by this stage we'd done about four or five, I suppose, and, he'd, and he rang me and offered me a play. He said, I'm having terrible trouble between QTC and STC. They both want the, the world premiere. And he said, it's just... It's just so bad, and the whole situation is so bad. He said, I've, 
I've just told them, well, well, I'll give it to the ensemble. If you can't work it out, I'll give it to the ensemble. And so, of course, they worked it out. But he'd given me kind of real hope that he was, he'd given me the idea that he was actually right. And I said to him, well, David, I'd, at one point, I said to him, I just feel like I'm a pawn in your game, in the power play. And I said, I don't like that. I don't like, I, f I feel used. I feel I was used. I said, you know, you really gave me the feeling that you were going to write a play for the ensemble because he had really liked our productions. And uh, so he he said, oh, I'm, I, I am writing a play for you. I am. And I said, oh, yes, David, yes. Yeah, that's lovely. <laughs> I was a bit, you know, offhand. Two weeks later, a play turns up. I could not believe it. And it was the first of his conferencing plays. Um, I don't know whether you know them, but they're fantastic. It's the, the Jack Manning trilogy? Yeah, the Jack Manning trilogy. And it was the first one turns up. And he, he didn't ever write the cast list at the beginning. He didn't ever get to see that. He just wrote the dialogue. And so I, so I don't know how many are in the cast and I've got no idea what, and so I'm starting reading and there are new names coming up, new names coming up, new names coming up. I'm thinking we're gonna to have to do a bit of doubling up here. And by the time I'm onto about page six, I'm thinking, nope, they're all on stage together and there were 10 of them, right. 10 of them. Now, there's no way we could break even. No, not a hope in hell paying 10 actors' salaries and all the stuff that goes with it. So I thought, how do you tell Australia's most famous playwright that you actually can't do his play? You, can't, you know, I, I thought, I can't do that. So what can I do? Well, I was directing it, so therefore, there was no extra cost for a director. And I thought, well, if I didn't have a designer and I didn't have a lighting designer, that could be all right. And it was a conferencing place. So I thought, I, what happens is your imagination takes over from the financial thing of how you can make it work. So I thought, what if we set it up as though this is a real conference and they've hired the theatre for the night, and there just happened to be a few people in to observe. So I thought, well, we'll use the chairs out of the dining room, which makes sense because they have hired the theatre and they've used the chairs that the people chairs know, possible, yeah. but it means we were not paying anything. And the tables that, a couple of tables that they have seen around that they've used from the foyer so we have no set, no set designer and, and no lighting designer because we didn't really need a lighting designer. We just wanted, Fleurous. just needed to be uh, the theatre for a conference. So we didn't need a lot. So I, I was on the right path, but I was still having trouble. And I thought, well, costumes. So I said to the kids or to all of them, look, um, I... I reckon for something like this, you would buy, you'd, you'd look as good as you can. There were three people who had money in the cast 
and the others were all factory workers, so they wouldn't have much money. So I said, I'm giving $100 to each of the three that have money and $50 to all the rest of you, and you can go and buy stuff at finishing, or you can pocket it and wear your own clothes. I don't care. I don't care. You can wear... And somebody said to me, but what if we clash? You know, what if I buy something and it clashes? And I said, that's what costume designers do. I said, you wouldn't do that for a conference. You wouldn't be asking what the... If you clash, you clash. Yeah. If, you, uh, if you wear something different the next night, that's fine. I don't care. And it cost us $300 for the paint on the back wall. And that was all it cost. Because then I came up with this idea, we still couldn't make the figures exactly work. So I thought, well, we, if we didn't have a stage manager, now that is really pushing the, the envelope. But I worked out that the guy who was running the conference, the Jack Manning character, could set it all up. And he just had to go and collect the... Well, Jim helped, Jim from the bar. He brought all the chairs in and helped, uh, and they set it up. And, and I thought, if we had... We had a, an old lighting table that just brought up the lights and brought them down. And I, we took that down and taught him how to just take the, the, the house lights out and, and bring the stage lights up. Very simple, very simple. But there were things like the announcement about phones, about mobiles. So, I, and you're not supposed to, well, this was the very first play I'd done of David, so I didn't want to change one single word in the writing. So I said to, to um, Jeff, who was playing Jack Manning, I said to him, when the, we'll, how will we know when to start? So I said, well, there's one, fortunately, David had written, there was one guy coming late. So he was up in the stage manager's office, hiding up there, and when Jim had clearance, he came out at the top of the stairs and and Jack Manning would see him and say, oh, so you're finally here. And he'd, change, he'd start to change the lights, but he would get out his phone and turn it off and look round at the others while the lights were still half on. And we had the guy coming down, you know, complaining and doing his first lines of dialogue. And by the time I got down, Everybody in the audience had turned off their mobiles because they'd seen the actors doing it. They got the cue. And so we did it without a stage manager and we ended up making a small profit. <laughs> so I think it's sometimes a financial situation can lead to something working so much better. And the guy who these conferences were based on, uh, the two guys who who would actually doing it in real life. He came and he saw the play, absolutely loved it. And then he went with David to Melbourne to see the Melbourne production and he came back and he said, it wasn't anything like as good. It was not, he said they had big stars in it and you, you know, so the big names detracted from it. You're watching those actors on stage watch, rather yes, than the character. And you, and you know that it's a play. Whereas with us, people didn't know. Someone actually said to me afterwards, oh, that was such a wonderful idea, Sandra, using real people. Actors could never have carried that off. <laughs> I loved it. I, you know, it's... So it, sometimes it works to your advantage. 
You directed, I think, over 100 productions at the ensemble. Yes, I did. Yeah. What was your rehearsal room like? Um, as, as I got, as I went longer with it, um, I know that a happy rehearsal period leads to a happy cast, leads to a happy show. I don't mean happy, happy. I mean confident and, and feeling at home. And that absolutely works for the audience. If the audience see a united cast, even though they're yelling at each other and all the rest of them, you can tell that, that there's, a, there's a cohesion. Um, it's a better experience for the audience. I know you studied pharmacy, but as a girl, did you have aspirations to be in the theatre one day, either as an actor or...? Oh, yes, you know. Yeah. I, at school, I got into all these plays and I always seemed to get the... the and my older sister had also done a lot of uh, acting too, so I did what she did. <laughs> as my, and so um, I, I did all these plays and what happened was we did Shakespeare Day on the 23rd of April every year and it was an all-girls school so I was playing Brutus in Julius Caesar because you know we had to play all the roles and uh, afterwards I got called round to the headmistress's office I was always in trouble you know I, I thought what have I done now I don't even know what I've done that was so bad and I arrived around there you know fairly sheepish she was quite um, scary and uh, there are two guys standing there and, and she said oh, she, she introduced them and I don't know it was an acting school in London and I think might have been right but I don't know I don't know what the school was and they were in Australia spotting and they were offering me a scholarship I was so excited I was just so excited and I was in my second last year of school and so um, I went home and I told my mother and my sisters and they were all excited. I had my bags mentally packed, I was out of there. And uh, my father arrived home and he said, uh, he said, that's fantastic, that's really great that that's happened. And he said, uh, he said oh, by all means do it. but." You go to university and get yourself a ticket first, and then you do whatever you want to do. You do, but you just need to get a ticket first. And I had enrolled in medicine because all my family did medicine, and so and my sister was in third year medicine at the time. So it had never been a, an issue. We just all did medicine, uh, and so when I I'd enrolled in medicine, but then I thought, oh, I. It's six years, I didn't want to spend another six years. and So I looked around the university for the shortest course that was acceptable to my father and it was pharmacy. So that's why I did pharmacy, no other reason. But I enjoyed pharmacy as it happened. And then when my second daughter wanted to uh, join the acting classes with Hayes, and then she wanted to, that's what she wanted to do. and. And I said, I actually, the words came out of my mouth. I said, well, you go to university and you get yourself a ticket and then you can do it. <laughs> something so, to fall back on. So, something to fall back on. But it, that's not, 
bad advice, actually, because it is so harsh out there. And I, and it's unfair, it is unfair, because the kids who come into audition over and over again, the ones that were working as waiters and waitresses and, and in pretty average jobs that they didn't really like, were so desperate for, for the work that they didn't audition as well as the people, as the young ones who had an interesting other job. And that's not fair, but it's true. So when people have asked me, and you know, mothers and grandmothers come to me, oh, my kid wants to, and, and will you please talk to them? And I say, well, I'm not going to discourage them if that's what they think, but I can advise them and I think it, it's true, it does help to have something else. It's not really to fall back on, it's something else you're interested in doing. And I remember one young actress said to me, she, she got a really good agent, she was really good, but she wasn't getting much work. And she said to me after about four or five years after she graduated, she said, I'm giving it one more year, one more year and then I'm, I'm giving it away because I don't want to end up hanging out for work for the rest of my life. I just want to... She was an excellent artist as well, and her mother was a potter. I don't really know what she ended up doing, but, but she gave it one more year, and I used her once. She was really good, but she said, I know. Um, yeah, so people would just crave that security. Or that routine. It, I mean, it, being an actor is quite a well. It's you're out of work vocation. a lot of time, yeah. aren't you? And I think some people really can't hack it. And and so you know, look, everybody's different. But it is good to have something else that you enjoy doing in the off times. Because I think if you if you're just waiting by the phone all the time. But also the kids that do the best are the ones who get up and make their own work. They get together and they're not going to sit around waiting for the phone to ring. They form a co-op and they put stuff on and and I've never liked the auditioning process much. I've, I've always felt it's been a little bit good readers and, and people who, and sometimes they, they don't, you get that at the end of the rehearsal period, whereas I want people who are going to develop them. So it's not a hugely um, good way of doing it. So I went to theatre all the time and I went to lots of cooperative things. And the guy that played the Jack Manning trilogy in the, that played Jeff, name escapes me, um, he, uh, he should be here. <laughs> and, Jeff Morrell? Uh, no. Uh. No, nobody was known. Oh right, the They're whole all point relative, was yeah. that they were that Actors they were real profiles. people. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was the kind of feel of it. Um, and and I'd gone to a a play at the Seymour Centre, which shall remain nameless. It was abysmal. It was abysmal, and I'm sitting there thinking, these. You know, where was the director? What is happening here? It was so bad. But there was one little bloke running around doing his bit and in spite of the chaos around him, he was truthful and he was working well. And I thought, I'll get him. So 
those kind of going to those shows were really good because you could find somebody who just was skilled and talented. So and that's part of your role as an artistic director too, I guess, just to be aware of who the actors are, where yes, they are, who's yes, working. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and 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 also, but I, I think my hardest job um, when I started was that I didn't know enough plays. You know, you've got to choose a whole season, particularly once it was into subscription, because Hayes had never had a subscription season. He was a pharmacist too. Was he really? Yeah, that was his background. And so he he had only ever done play-by-play, play, and he said it's the only way to keep it timely. You know, we, well, I don't know about that. By the time you choose a play and do the rehearsal because it's timely, that issue has gone around the fish and chips, you know. It might have been time. So, and that's where I love David Williamson because he has this extraordinary ability to see in advance where our society is going. And by the time we do a new play of his, it's in the headlines. How does he know? Mm. How does he know? He sees, he's just a little bit ahead of his time. And when I'm first reading, I'm thinking, oh, that, that's not gonna happen. And bingo, it happens. He's done it so often. He's so clever at, and he's also, what I love about him too, is he writes, I mean, we all know he's left-leaning, but he, and, and his values, but he writes the characters on the opposing sides equally fairly, absolutely fairly, so that you see, and of course people who come, it's why I hate Q&A, because I used to watch it when I started, and then I, when it first started, then I hated it because the audience were clearly divided into two packs, and they had speakers from either side, they only listened to the person who, who was on their side and cheered and yelled and booed, and booed the other. They didn't shift their values at all. Huh. And, and I'm the exact opposite of that. I absolutely believe that, well, I said to Hayes when I was trying to get um, funding, I said, you know, is there a kind of motherhood statement? And he said, oh, don't do it, but, you know, he said... Um, he said, live theatre can and should be a civilising influence in our society. And I wrote it down. I thought, that's the most pretentious thing I've ever heard. I'll never say that again, but I'll put it on the thing. I absolutely believe it. I absolutely, and I, I used to speak at a lot of clubs and things, and I always said it, because I absolutely believe it. And that's where David is. He's, he's, people say, oh, he writes the same play. He doesn't. He you and with I have been to plays where you can see the audience are divided and they come in and they're so right wing or they're so left wing or they're so anti or they're so homophobic or they're so what that they're not changing at all. But with the productions I've done, I have always tried to make it really fair and to and to promote both sides. As strongly and the actors god bless them do it no matter what their own stance is they do it really well and i can see there are changes there are 
changes in people's, they move a little bit. They don't necessarily change their mind completely, but they shift a little bit. And I'm a great believer in tolerance. I'm a great believer in, in people being a little more tolerant. And, uh, and that's really been the basis of the theatre always. I, I remember doing a play soon after I started and it was a Jeff Cartwright play and it was, it was about unemployment in England and he came from Bolton from a really bad area where everybody was unemployed and he said to his father he wanted to be an actor and he, his father said well you might as well be an unemployed actor as an unemployed anything else. <laughs> so, so, he, uh, so we did this play and it was very strong about unemployment and, and, but it was good to do it in Australia then because at that stage we were still talking about doll bludgers and to me it was a cautionary tale that inevitably we were a few years behind England but it was going to happen and that was my kind of thinking behind doing it. But it was still a pretty entrenched that they were just old bludgers and that. And Hayes said to me then, when he came, he said, you know, if you do things that are very strongly one way or another, uh, without giving a balance, you're going to send half the audience away. You're going to end up with an audience that is, that you're preaching to the converted. And he said, what's the point of that? What is the point of that? The whole point is to is to shift people in their biases a little. So I think that was a very valuable lesson. And, and I remember um, a couple, um, an older couple coming to um, one of the plays, and it was very, very strong play. And I thought it was, you know, it was world changing and all the rest of it. And it, it was a Thursday morning and they were, they'd come and I saw them at the bar and they talked to me a few times. And, uh, and I said, are you enjoying it? I have since learned to say, you never, ever, ever say that. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, well, frankly, no. And I said, oh, well, it's important. You know, it's important that people have to understand that this is the kind of thing that's happening in the world. And people have to understand that this is, likely to happen in Australia and people actually have to realise that that you know it's important to see all aspects of and she said to me well you know Sandra my husband has cancer he's got a couple of months to live she said he's in pretty bad pain but we use painkillers to come to the theatre and he said she said we are never ever not away from what is happening but she said, we go to the theatre so that at least for just a little while we're released from the ex extreme pain that we're going through. And she said, and this has not done that for us. And she said, and we're people too. Wow. We're people too. It's an escape for some people. Well, for them... As well as being didactic and yes, informative. Yes, yes. It, it, it can be a lot of things, but... but it was good to hear, it's good to hear things that, I had a lady, I did the gingerbread lady, because Patty McDonald was doing it and she had an accident and, and so I was acting it and I had the main role, it was ridiculous, I was much too young, but I did it and I wasn't that good. 
But the play was terrific. This is a Neil Simon play yes. about alcoholism. Yes, yeah. and so I was playing that role, and I ended up, Paddy did it for five weeks, and I did it for six weeks. But one night um, I came up after the show, and Jim said to me, oh, there's a lady over in the corner, she wants to talk to you. So I went over, and I was talking to her, and she said, this is a dreadful play, you should not be doing plays like this, this is terrible. She said, you know, alcoholism, you, you, you're making it seem acceptable, and it's not acceptable. It's Well, then it all came out, it poured out, and she said, my sister's an alcoholic, and she said she had four children, and she just drank and drank and drank until her husband had to leave her because she was so bad, and he took the children, she said, I... I, I'm totally on my brother-in-law's side and I've seen the children, done what I can for him. And, and I said, how long ago did this happen? She said, oh, 25 years ago. And I said, and what's happened to your sister? And she said, oh, I don't know, I don't care. She said, I don't care. I said, you haven't spoken to her in 20... She said, no, she brought her on herself, it's not her. And I said, well, you know, if she had a broken arm, you wouldn't feel like this. This is this is an illness, exactly the same as a broken arm. It's not. Anyway, I talked it through with her, and she burst into tears. And she, before she ran out, she said, "Oh, I guess I'll go and visit her tomorrow." The power of theatre. It can be a cathartic experience too. Yeah. Well, not just cathartic. It, a life-changing. She mm. was going to visit her. She hadn't spoken to her sister for 25 years. She said she lives in some little unit in in, in uh, Crow's Nest, probably drinking her life away, and she was going to go and see her visit, visit her sister the next day. Those kind of life-changing things that happen out of a play is kind of magical. Yeah. It really... They're the stories that are terrific. So when did you meet first meet Hayes Gordon, was that when you started his acting classes? Yes, I was working in a pharmacy at um, at Schofield's, God's Forgotten Acre. I loved it. It was such fun. And the, the woman in the shop said her daughter-in-law had gone to this class at, uh, at the Ensemble Theatre. It was an acting class and she was telling me about it because Hayes was a great speaker and, and, and really got you involved. And, and, uh, and Anyway, she was telling me all about it, and I said, when was it? She said, oh, it was three hours on Sunday afternoon. So I got home, and I said to Peter, well, I had four little kids at this stage, and uh, and I, I said to him, how would you feel if I went to a class at the ensemble? I thought it was one class. So he said, oh, yeah, that's fine. So off I went, and then I found it was a course. I thought it was a, a class. But, you know, you go to one class and You're sign I up for was 10 weeks. hooked. Yeah, yeah. I was hooked. Well, it was three years and it <laughs> went on and on and on and on. Um, but it, he, he really understood uh, people's psyche and uh, he, he was a wonderful teacher. He was an American actor who came to Australia was it Oklahoma? Y yes, he'd, he'd done, no. He'd, he'd done, done Oklahoma, Oklahoma and he was sacked from Oklahoma. Was he really? Yes, because no. he found out that the, they'd done one preview and he found out that the black uh, members of the um, group 
uh, of the chorus were earning less than the white members of the chorus. And he thought it was terrible, so he went to the producers and they said, it's none of your business, just do... And he had two songs. It was a reasonable role, forgotten what it was called, and, and, and it was a reasonable... But he was only about 28 or something, and, and uh, he was a bass baritone, and with a beautiful voice, and he was doing really well, and so they said, it's none of your business, just... So he went to the writers and said, do you realise that the black members of the cast are not earning as much as the white in the chorus? And they said no, so they went to the producers. And Hayes arrived at the theatre that night. They had brought all the cast in, they'd given his songs to two other, they'd re-rehearsed it. His dialogue had been handed out to other people. That role disappeared from Oklahoma. Curly, that was his name, I think, Curly. He had the program, and he was deleted, he was deleted. And once that happened, he was blacklisted. There was no way he was going to get work. It was dreadful. So he, uh, and it was the McCarthy era, and he was due to be, and, and he said, how dare, <laughs> how dare they ask me whether I'm American. I was born in America, I'm American. See, of course I'm American, but it was house un-American activity. activities. Yeah. Therefore you were un-American if you were doing anything that was against. Deemed to be communism or... Mm. So he was offered a role in Australia and he thought, oh, just to, uh, kiss me Kate. He thought that I'll escape there for a It'll all have changed within six weeks or so. This will all be over. A, a time when J.C. Williamson's, I guess, were, were bringing that, out importing stars. Absolutely. Or Americans or Englishmen. Yeah, yeah. And so he he uh, came out and what and he'd gone through the Stanislavski school um, uh, in America and so his acting was based on method and at that stage in Australia we was the English tradition of beautiful voices and great gestures and somebody would walk onto stage and they'd everybody would clap the star actor you know, you didn't go on the journey. You you were watching wonderful actors doing their their shtick, and and Hayes was not like that at all. And the other actors in the cast said to him, "How do you do it?" And so he said, "Oh, it's a different way of working." So he asked the producers if they if he could do classes between the Saturday matinee and the Saturday evening on stage. There was about a three-hour break, and they said, "Yeah." So he he st started to teach the other actors, and they loved it. And they said, "Look, we've got other friends who would love this that are actors. Could they come?" So they all came, and it grew and it grew and it grew. Well, he didn't charge anything, and then of course the show was over. And they said, "What are we going to do now?" He said, "Oh, well, he was in a little unit, a little house uh, up near the park in in." Um, in North Sydney and he said well you just have to come into my living room so so he started classes in his living room and it was all those original actors Reg Livermore and Lorraine Bailey and Don Reed and oh, Don joined a little bit after but um, all these old Jack Thompson you know all these people who were original 
members and uh, and they graduate then they wanted somewhere to show their craft and so they found a they did the first show in on the 10th of May 1958 and uh, they did it at the children's uh, library in Camaray and that was the start of it so the ensemble was born yeah what were Hayes's classes like what did he oh what did he, he was do? such a good teacher yeah. he some people didn't like it he he did he push and pride and bully or uh, he didn't bully no but he he uh, I had one lass I I subsequently got to know really well and but she was a very spoilt only child um, who'd had everything and and the father turned up with her on the first day to check Hayes out to make sure he was all right and he was a judge and all of this and she she said to me I think he took Hayes took an instant dislike to me and she said it really I was open to I just wanted to be an actress. So he wasn't, he sometimes, he did make people feel very uncomfortable, but that, but that's part of it. That's part of it. I, I thought he was a fantastic teacher. Um, well, it's like directors too. Sometimes we gel with the director that we're working with. Sometimes we don't. Yeah, yeah. With fellow actors, it's sort of... It's yes. an unusual business theatre, isn't it? That collaboration which oh, is required collaboration. When, yes. when you come along. Yeah. And, and of course, because I wanted to act, I th and so how I got to directing was hilarious because when you were doing scenes in class, you always had to have a director and nobody ever wanted to direct. They all wanted to act. But you had to take your turn and it was never mentioned. So we did, I did this scene that I directed because, you know, I felt I had to. Um, it was my turn. And at the end of it, after we'd discussed all the acting, Hayes said, who directed this scene? And I said, I did. He said, you should think about directing. And I thought, you know, you're paranoid. You're totally paranoid. I thought, oh, he's telling me I can't act. <laughs> and so m maybe six months later, and again, directors were not mentioned again at all in that time. And we did scenes every week. And uh, I did another one and he said, who directed? And I said, oh, I did. He said, you should really think about directing. And I thought, he's telling me I really can't act. <laughs> but um, I think a lot of it had kind of sunk in. It was by, and then I assisted a lot of directors. I could afford to not have to be paid, which helped. And uh, so I would have, uh, mostly Hayes, but maybe another, Ten directors I assisted, and by I didn't. So you're serving I didn't an want apprenticeship, to, aren't you? Yeah, I didn't really, I didn't really want to direct, but by a s sort of osmosis, you work out what works and what doesn't work, and very clearly what you shouldn't do, and the bullying was ridiculous. You know anything that, and 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 I learnt very early on. You can give an actor a note, and if they don't do it, then you find a different way of trying to get that what it is you want, 
and try and explain it a different way. And if it still doesn't happen, let it go. Unless, unless it's hugely important to the play, and it rarely is. So you let it go because otherwise you can see the moment coming up on stage and you can see them, they drift away from their character while they're thinking, now what is it she wants me to do? And we lose the play. I learned a very good thing from Hayes. I said to him when I was assisting him on something, I said, I don't understand in this bit, you seem to have, you seem to have brought in some background music and the lights are, uh, are, are, are doing odd things. I said, why is that? And I said, I don't know what it does to help the play. And he said, well, you've heard the notes I've given the actor, you've heard and you've seen what he's doing. He's never get, he said, it's just a distraction for the audience. <laughs> Clever. Watch it. Clever. Yeah. He was never going to get what he wanted, so... He'd divert away from the actor. Yeah. Because it was a, a really important speech that he just couldn't give it the weight, so... What kept Hayes in Australia? Did he marry or...? Yeah, well, no. What, what happened was he, he did all that teaching and then he, he realised that people were really loving it and the the acting was changing uh, and and now all the schools teach it or at least pay lip service to to it but but Hayes was really the only one at that time and uh, and then he was asked to go into Annie get your gun and his his marriage was falling apart he had a daughter in America and his marriage was falling apart and he said what he loved about Australia, what he absolutely loved was fair go. He said, he said he just loved that expression and he saw it. He actually witnessed that it didn't, there was no kind of class, there was no, that people really, if they tried hard, could do it. They were, you had a, a land of opportunity and he loved it. And he never went back. Well, he, he only took out American, uh, Australian citizenship late because when they introduced dual citizenship because he just couldn't, it was still his country even though he lived in Australia and, and loved it. So he didn't really ever go back. And then continued to work right through that time at the ensemble and then in musicals like Annie. Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, Fiddler was the one that went on for years. Mm. It was during Fiddler that I started the classes, or s sooner uh, was already... No, I think I had one year with Hayes, and then he was in Fiddler, and we hardly saw him. But Zeke and Esther did the nuts and bolts of it, which was good, but Hayes used to come back whenever he was in Sydney, and, um, but, and he was unbelievably generous. He felt that he didn't have much money, you know, he, he, he didn't, all he was earning was from the students and half of them weren't paying because they didn't have any money. I mean, he was, but that was all he was earning. He didn't earn anything as the artistic director. He, he didn't ever, there was never any money to have, so he never earned anything from it. And so 
when he did Fiddler, he earned bucket loads of money and he, he said to his, his company, you need to expand your horizons. You know, you're not, you're so involved, so I'm going to send you out in pair couples for six months trip around the world to observe other, and he paid for the lot. Wow. Professional development. Yeah. yeah. See, there's those stories that a lot of people don't know. No. Yeah, that generosity. No, it was really generous. The ensemble is a remarkable story of theatrical survival because early you spoke about there was no government subsidy. You just relied on donations and, and box office. Box office. It, uh, throughout my time, 98% of our income was box office. And we did fine. We did fine. You just, you're doing plays people want to see. But funnily enough, the plays people want to see are sure the comedies do better. You just put them on for longer seasons. But that doesn't stop you doing plays that can be life-changing and, and deep and, and really confronting. You can still do those. You just do them for shorter seasons. Yeah. And it gives you great autonomy, the, the company, great, oh, when yeah. you don't have to answer to the government's right. uh, funding. All you're doing is, uh, and John Bell actually said to me recently, he said, you know, because he retired about the same time as me, and he said, he said, you know, I'm so jealous of your career. He said, you know, I reckon over my whole career, I would have spent 50% of my time and energy in funding and sponsors and, and he said, you were able to do 100% on the theatre. Yeah. It's kind of daft not to do that, isn't it? Yeah. And along the way, finding gold like uh, Double Act, Barry Creighton's mm. Double Act, mm. and Mixed Emotions with Lorraine Bailey and Henry Zepps's Double Bass. Mm. I've Be got to tell you a story, because you'll love this story, about um, Double Act. Um, Barry wrote it for himself and Nolene, and... I didn't know either of them, but anyway, I read it and I thought this could be great. And so it was good. And they were glad that, we, that I'd taken the risk on them. But on one, on one, and it was going gangbusters. And we had, but we still didn't have money. And Nolan was supposed to be this rather smartly dressed woman who, and, uh, and I said, we just don't have the money for all those costume changes. And she said, ah, she lived in, of Southern Highland. She said, I've got a friend who's got a boutique. She'll lend me the stuff, just put a thing in the program and you know, that all the So she had all these beautiful clothes and we had nobody backstage to help them change. So Barry we'd done it between us, we'd worked out that that one person left the stage walking out and they've got the big change. And the other and so they're back on at the end of the scene and this is a minimal change for the second one. So it ran smoothly. So there was but there were time dif differences and things. So in this particular scene, Nolene, all she had to do was put on a jacket because Barry had held it. So it was just a jacket that she brought and was a beautiful jacket. The scene was seven minutes long, Thursday morning, and I'm sitting up the back and there's a little old lady gets up from the middle of the second row. So she's got, either way, she's got eight people to walk past. I thought. Maybe she's sick, you know, there's not much she can do. 
but if she wants to go to the loo, why didn't she go at interval? You know, you, all of this is going through your mind because it is distracting yeah. for people. It got worse. She came down the stairs. She walked around the stage. I thought, where the hell is she going? She goes out to the middle of the stage and she tucks in the dag tag on the jacket and goes back and sits down again. I, <laughs> I could not believe it. I just couldn't believe it. So I went round to the dressing rooms afterwards with smoke coming out my eyes. I could not believe it. And Nolene standing at the door grinning at me and said, Sandra, I don't think you've met my mum. <laughs> Isn't it lovely? Fantastic. Only a mother. Only a mother. <laughs> the, the Boat Shed uh, Theatre is, is a beautiful venue, but it's a very small stage. Was there ever any talk of finding a, a larger venue for the ensemble? Oh interminably really right. it's gone on and on and on we have managed to now get 220 seats so it's the seat numbers it costs you the same to put on a play whether you've got 500 seats or 220 seats and your costs are still the same and but you know you just don't get the revenue back so yeah we had we've done lots of things but then occasionally things will happen like we with mixed emotions the playwright came out from America to see it. He was such a nice guy. And he arrived out, and it was just evening, and he'd only just arrived on the plane, and he arrived and it was evening, and, it, and he came to the theatre, and we were in previews, I think. And uh, so he'd come at about six, seven o'clock or something. So, and we, uh, we walk, walk down the foyer. I'm so used to the foyer. You just walk out and you, for a bit of a chat and a glass of wine. And he stood there and he said, Oh my God, this is so beautiful. The, I've never seen a theatre. Oh, this is so... And you have to stop and remind yourself that for people it's... It is really beautiful. Mm. So... When you get that kind of thing happening, you think, oh, but will we find something that's... As magical. As magical. Mm. And the, the intimacy of the space also helps the audience go on the journey much more. So... And it's an exciting space for actors oh, to play yeah. as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and actors... I, we, we did a, a play called The Petition, and it was about a very... It was Betty Lucas and, uh, and Frank Wilson... And it was English, and the, um, the he was playing a general, a very right-wing general, and she has signed a petition to say about nuclear weapons, <laughs> and we find out by interval that she's got cancer, she's dying, and she she stuck by him all her life, and before she dies, she wants to. So everybody is on Betty's side, everybody in the audience, but there was a guy sitting in the front row who was obviously very right-wing and was cross. That, and the waves from the audience do affect actors. There's no doubt. Frank said, I felt like a pariah. But he did it really well. And he had this huge, long, um, right-wing speech about how by not... by having nuclear weapons in the East and the West, we hadn't had a third world war because it kept the balance of power. I mean, it was a... Obviously, the playwright was left-wing, but he had, like David, he had written it very, very fairly. 
But the audience, he could have been reading from the telephone book as far as the audience, all their things, poor Betty, you know, living with this man who's so pompous and so full of himself. There's one guy in the front row and he was incensed by what was happening all around him. So it got to the end of that speech and he, he wasn't showing off, he wasn't, he was just literally going on the journey and couldn't bear what was happening. And he got up, got out of his chair and he went over to Betty and he said, he's right, you know. <laughs> and, and, Betty, Betty kind of, and then he realized what he'd done, but he, he'd become so involved. So he went back to sit down and the audience are all kind of laughing. And he said, and he stood up again, he said, no, no, you people, you people are not listening, you're not giving him a chance. You are all so unfair, you're so unfair. You need to listen to what he's got to say. What he's got to say is important and it matters and you're just all on her side because she's dying. And sat down again. But I love it when things yeah, like yeah, that Yeah, yeah, they're happen. priceless moments, aren't they? Because the people it's, got so involved. And we had a, when we did one of the conferencing plays, and it was about, it's called a conversation, God, and it, the only daughter, the only child of this couple has been raped and murdered and they're meeting up with the family of the rapist murderer. He's in jail, but the family know he's likely to uh, to be put in solitary confinement and they know he's already on the edge. And so they're pleading for some kind of understanding that would support him not having to do that. Of course, the mother and father don't give a toss, but that's the great part about the conference today but I had Robert Colby playing the father and he was fantastic and he was so I we had a photo of the daughter on stage and it was Di Craig playing the wife and they each had a daughter and I said what I think we could do is get a photo of both your daughters and meld it um, photoshop it so there's a likeness to both of you and then that might help you help help you too that you see some and I looked at me and said Sandra you could put a photo of a gorilla out there and it will still be my daughter and they were so good so powerful and Robert and at one point Glenn Hazeldean was playing the brother and he had to do this thing of how he could have stopped it he could he could have and he went up because he could his brother had come to help him work in this stacking shelves and he'd seen the way he'd been looking at this girl who was a university student and he knew she she was at risk and so she went up to the girl and uh, and started to try and say something and she was a North Shore you know but she's living in Newtown because she's Sydney University and I guess she was just she just turned on her back on him and said get away from me I don't want to speak to you and so he said oh well I thought oh well get raped, well, get raped you bitch, something like that. Well, they were all on stage and Robert, you couldn't contain him. You couldn't contain him, he just, because it's, you know, we work expecting it to be real to the actors and yeah. they, bless them, they for them it, it is real, yeah. it is real. And it was so real for Robert and he would go for it for 
Glenn, and Glenn had to disappear up the stairs, and there was an uncle in it, and and the and Jeff and uh, Jack Manning, and they had to hold him back. And uh, uh, Jeff said to me at one stage, "He's so strong, I don't know how." And I said, "Well, you just have." He said, "Can't you tell him to?" I said, "No, I can't. No, I can't. This this has to have that kind of power. You have to." He said, I would stop this conference if it was. And I said, well, would you? I don't. Anyway, we talked it through and, and the other guy was very strong. So it was, he was fit to kill. Yeah. But then Glenn's got dialogue. Yeah. So he's got to come back down. And Glenn is scared stiff because it's real. All of this is real. He is scared stiff. But he has to come get to the bottom of the stairs. And and I wanted to keep it with that amount of danger. And he's standing in the corner and there's a lady and he's shaking, he's so scared. And there's a lady sitting beside him, right beside him, and she takes his hand and she starts stroking his arm and saying, there, there. Now just calm down, just calm down won't get anywhere if you don't calm down here. Just, and Glenn said, I felt calmer. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's lovely that audiences can really affect the actors so much. Mm. It's good. What delights you most about your time at the ensemble? All this, the hundreds and hundreds of stories I've heard from audience members about, like I told you, the one about the the alcoholic, that it it changed their lives. It made yeah, their yeah. it made them feel differently about something. It made them more tolerant. Uh, well, it gets but, back to that mother statement of Hayes. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely, and and you know, there's a. There's a lovely uh, poem that Hayes introduced us to, too. I won't tell you the whole thing, it's just the final verse. And it was Oscar Hammerstein III, who was a, an actor, but was also writing. And he wrote a, a musical which I think died in the, died a death. But, but it, there were some good th things in it. And, and he, this was a song, and it was called The Big Black Giant. I don't know whether you've heard no. of it. But, but The Big Black it's an actor on stage who's looking out at this big black giant of the audience and how you cope with that. And, uh, and the last verse is a, um, this big black giant with thousands of eyes and ears, this big black giant with worries and hopes and fears. Some nights it's a laughing giant. Some nights it's a crying giant. Some nights it's a coughing giant. Some nights it's a sleeping giant. Each night we must fight the giant. And maybe if we win, we send him out a nicer giant than he was when he came in. <laughs> that is beautiful. Hmm. Yeah. And so when I do speeches, I often say that bit too, because that's exactly what I hope theatre does. And it can and should be a civilising influence. I hate going to plays where nothing is resolved. Well, you, you don't necessarily have to have a resolution, but where people are just 
bad. And they they, there's no redeeming quality. You don't see the, you know, the worst, the worst offender, the worst usually has something. They didn't choose to be like this. They didn't want to be a murderer. There must be reasons. And if you can find the reasons why they're like they are and they are able to to show some of that, you're giving it more balanced. Was it easy to retire or did you do it with some reluctance? <laughs> it became very easy in the end because I couldn't see well enough. I could no longer read the plays. Uh, I couldn't read the business sheets, which are pretty vital. Um, and I couldn't see actors' faces. So on my penultimate play in the season, uh, I, I had Antenny in it. And it was a gay play, it was a lovely play. And, and she was playing the mother. And early on I wanted her, I'd, I'd said to her, I, when he says that I think there needs to be some reaction from you. She's a terrific actress, so I didn't have to tell her what, she got it. And then we moved, so she did it all the time in rehearsal and she was great. And we moved into the theatre and we did the first preview. And she didn't do it, so I gave her the note. And I thought maybe she'd just forgotten because she'd moved. And then the next night, as I've said, you don't, you try not to give a note a second time, certainly not to Anne and certainly not in front of other people. So I waited till they'd all gone and I said to Anne, can I just talk to you? And I said, look, I, I, um, I just noticed you still weren't doing that reaction. Um, is there some reason you don't want to do it? You know, let's talk it through because it's not vital, but, but it, it seems cool. And she said, oh, Sandra, I am doing it. And I said, really? She said, I did it last night too. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me when I was giving the notes? She said, oh, I didn't want to embarrass you because you obviously couldn't see it. I thought it was time I went. That was a really good, strong thing to happen because I thought, I can't do, I can't do the right thing by the audience any longer because I, I can't see well enough enough to see nuances. And this is due to your macular degeneration. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't see faces. See, I can't. I, I can kind of make out your face because you've got the light on it, but no. Did that sadden you or, or make you angry? No, you know, God, I was seventy-seven. I, you know, I'd had a pretty bloody good innings. As I said at my farewell dinner, with poor old Mark coming and taking over, and I, I said, you know, poor old Mark, he, he's English, but he must. He must feel a bit like the royal family, you know, like poor old Prince Charles. When is she ever going to cark it? <laughs> so, so you're filling your retirement time in gleefully? Yes, gleefully is exactly the right word. Right. That's exactly the right word. It's gleeful. The lack of commitment to having to do things, the lack of scheduling, the thing of waking up in the morning and thinking, I wonder what day it is, I wonder if I've got something to do today. Oh, I don't know, I don't care. Will I get up now or... No. Nah. It's cold. Stay in bed. To be able to do whatever I choose is fabulous. I still have... I have obviously, I've got my four children and, and, uh, and four in-laws and 11 grandchildren. And the eldest of those now have partners. One of the eldest ones married. One of them's married. Another one's engaged. 
So they bring a lot of joy to my life as well. Um, and I've got wonderful friends. But I don't actively want to join a group. I have no interest in joining a club or... Well, I mean, I would have loved to have played bridge because I enjoyed bridge when I was younger. I liked the, the skills of it. But I can't see well enough. I, I get the ace of spades and the ace of clubs muddled. I, and, and my friend who really wanted me to play with her, she said, oh, there's a guy at the club and he's got this huge lamp on his forehead, like a miner's lamp. And, he, and people, and I said, and what happens? And she said, oh, well, you know, he does make a few mistakes. But she said, people are, are really patient. They're really kind. And I said, and they're really uh, patronising? She said, I don't think they mean to be. I said, I don't need that. I'd, I'd rather do things I can do. You're on a slippery slope. And so the two things that I have that I can do just as well as anyone else is listen to the radio and listen to talking books. So that's great. I don't listen to a lot of talking books yet because I'm holding off for that because I can still do Sudoku on my on my um, Your iPad. my iPad very very slowly because uh, I look for the number and I finally work it out and I go to put it in and it's already there so it's um, it's very slow but it's I used to love doing crosswords too and nine letter words all that stuff in the Herald before I went to work but I I can't do that anymore this I can do on a very bright, blown up iPad, be it ever so slowly. But I know I'm inches away from stopping that. And then the, uh, the, um, the, I, the um, talking books will come into their own. But I, I have a bit of trouble with it because I, I get somebody arrives and I turn it off and I can't find how to turn it on again and the place you left off I guess no and what happens is the way I I think there's a way of doing it but I would have to go back to the be beginning of the chapter and listen to it all again and then find it was actually only two pages from, from, uh, from the end the of the end. chapter so there are things that are frustrating but you know overall it's great it's, and, and it's great to have the radio you hear so, you know, I didn't ever listen to them. I've got a huge television that because I, about three years ago, uh, I was at my nephew's place and he had a huge television and I used to love watching the tennis. And I, but there's not a lot of point if you can't see the ball. I've got to tell you, it's, it's really hard when you can't see the ball. It's a bit pointless. Yeah. And, um, and so I could see it. So I went and bought this huge new, but now I can't see the ball bouncing anymore. But I can get, and I go to the movies on a big movie screen. I, I, my friends all sit up the back and I sit down the front row. And I, and I go to the theatre a lot and I sit in the front row. Um, I don't get the nuances. I don't get the, uh, I miss things that, that I know could be really enriching. I get the overall gist of it. How wonderful to have been in a job you adore for that length of time. To be rewarded each day by making theatre, telling stories and providing an essential experience for the community. 
We certainly wish Sandra continued joy and amusement in her retirement and thank her for that enormous output at the ensemble over 30 years. Wow. My guest next time on Stages is expat performer Marie Johnson. Marie now resides in New York City, where she is currently playing the role of Madame Giry in Broadway's The Phantom of the Opera. You may recall that at the start of her career, she gave us majestic performances as Christine Daae in the original Australian production. It was fascinating to discuss what it's like to return to a special show after some 23 years. She was home briefly over Christmas, and it was a great thrill to find time in her busy schedule to record this episode. That's next time on Stages, the glorious Marie Johnson. This has been episode 112 of Stages. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter Ayers. Catch you next time.